Aloha, guys, and welcome back to the uh, Vicious Cycle podcast. Uh, my guest besides me today is uh, Ryan O'Halloran. And uh, before I have him introduce himself, I'm going to just kind of break the ice a little bit. We did a little test run here for a second, and uh, just to see how the, uh, the acoustics sounded and the audio. And my daughter that snuck in the background said that Ryan sounded nervous. So I thought maybe... Uh, Ryan can crack another beer, and I will just give him a little, little introduction before he introduces himself. Ryan is a local real estate agent and one hell of a fisherman. And uh, Ryan, why don't you go ahead and introduce yourself? Hey guys, Ryan O'Halloran. Glad to be part of Kenton's new podcast. Well, Should be a good time. Well, we're glad that you're here too. So um, one of the reasons I want to get you on the show, A, I want to talk fishing stories with you. And uh, B, one question I get a lot of, like I get random messages all the time on Instagram and um, people ask me about, hey, how easy is it to get a job out there? Hey, you know, like what's it like to live out there? Hey, and I always tell them that probably the hardest part of, of Hawaii isn't so much getting a job here, it's living here. And, and what I mean by that is the cost of living and the availability of houses. Can you speak to that? Oh, 100%. That's a question I get asked on a daily basis. Hey, do you know of a place for rent? Hey, I'm thinking of moving to Hawaii. Can you hook me up with a rental? And obviously I have rental managers that work for the real estate firm I work for, but they only have high-end listings, you know, so the best place, the best deal you can find is through word of mouth, and you kind of got to know somebody to get a good deal. So it's kind of a... Um, a give and take of trying to figure out if I should move here, I don't know anybody, but basically to get the best deal, you gotta just show up and be here. And when you say the best deal, just to give people at home a uh, kind of a price range, because I think a lot of people are shocked when they hear how expensive it is to live here, especially when they hear how low the average pay is. So like what's a typical, give, give a rundown of what a typical house costs or what a typical rental would cost. Well, the average, single family home on the big island don't quote me on this but it's right around 550 right now uh, and yeah to rent something in one bedroom is going to be at least $1200 if if not 15 for one bedroom rental yeah isn't that crazy so an over half a million dollar for a single family home so what is like I mean, what is somebody getting for that? Is that a new home or is that just like, are that even like aging homes and things like that? Um, probably something built in the mid to late 80s, 1,500 square foot, three bedroom, two bath. Isn't that incredible? Someone from Texas is probably listening to that and could get a mansion for half a million dollars. The price of paradise, we call it. Why would you say it's so expensive here? Is it truly because of the local demand to live here or because so many people buy property here as investments? It's definitely both. Right now, because of COVID, you got everybody from the West Coast coming, coming here because they can work, figured out how to work remotely. Um, and obviously, a lot of people have second homes as well. I guess that's true. I never really thought about that. Uh, Because I've been wondering, like, why are all the houses, like, 
selling so fast when there's no industry here. There's no new industry, but that makes sense. Now the new people coming in are people that are all working mobily. Is that is that the case for the most part? Yeah, especially since since COVID happened. Everybody in the city, you know, Seattle, Bay Area, California, Portland, their houses, you know, are worth their housing market is worth a lot more than it is here. So they can sell their house back on the mainland and move here and they think it's a good deal. So it's actually comparably a good deal for them because Correct. everything where they're at is so expensive. Like the house across the street from me, I saw them stick a real estate sign up on it and um, I called about it and it was two hours deep into it and it already had a full price ca cash offer sight unseen. Yeah, I'm not surprised lately since COVID. You would have thought that our housing market might take a little bit of a dip. And at first, the first few months, everything was at a standstill. And then once people on the mainland figured out they could work remotely, everybody thought, well, why not work remotely from Hawaii? And can't blame them. If I was in their shoes, they definitely would do the same. Right. Now, let me ask you something. This is something that comes up a lot. And I worry about, say, like the next generation. I haven't seen an increase in any type of industry here and so how does the next generation get themselves into an affordable home? Like how does the common man own a home? What are, what are steps like – say there's a young fisherman now who wants to own his, his own house someday. What steps does he take now where that becomes a reality? What's available for them? I have a few really good lenders that I encourage everybody to talk to and they'll get you on a game plan of basically how to save and setting your goals. I read something scrolling through Instagram the other day and it said something like only 5% of people that have goals write them down and 95% of the people that write their goals down achieve them. Something like that. Wow. Well, there you go. So okay. basically having written goals taped to your bathroom mirror in the morning while you're brushing your teeth, whether it be just save $5 out of $20 paycheck, forget about it something like that and is that some of the kind of stuff the lenders you you work with will actually help set these people up with a long-term plan where little things will lead towards eventually being able to get a house is that For right sure just like baby steps or check in with them once every three months like hey how's your saving going hey well, um do we need to update your goals stuff like that um definitely think just getting your goals written down and looking at them on a daily basis is my best advice to answer your question. With the current uh, em environment, is there um, are there any like first time buyers loans or anything like that available for people? Or like what happens? Okay, so lots of people lost their jobs, right, because right. of COVID. Yeah, and then they collected, say, PUA, which out here is like a stimulus, like unemployment or un or or they did collect unemployment. Can you get approved for a house if you've been taking unemployment? I don't know the answer to that question. It would be a question for one of my lenders. Right off the top of my head, I don't believe so, but I would just say save every bit that you can of that unemployment. And then once you get off of unemployment, go talk to your lender and reapply. Yeah, because I can remember when I bought my first home, and I don't know if things have changed or not, but I remember what they were really concerned about was two years. They were less so worried about um, the – they were less so worried about the actual – down payment amount I had, they were more concerned about steady cash flow for the last two years and, and record of that. Is that 
still kind of the same, yeah, you know? Yeah, for sure. Every lender wants to see your past two um, tax returns and your last two years of your income is just the standard on the loan application. But there's ways around everything. Let me ask you something, and this, this might be kind of a com- conflict here because obviously the more you sell a house for, the more money you make. But do you think the housing market is getting too far away from the local people? Do you think it's getting unfair from people coming in from the outside? I mean, we live in a free market. Honestly, I'm in, your, I'm in the position that you're explaining. I don't own a house. I've been saving for the last five years and had just got pre-approved for a certain amount before COVID, before the housing market even went even higher. And I'm definitely frustrated um, to answer your question, but... And you're even in the business. I'm in the business. But with that being said, living here on the big island is still the most affordable housing of any of the other islands besides Lanai and Molokai. Right. Now, that's another thing people at home wouldn't know um, is that although that half a million dollar average home sounded expensive, uh, I read somewhere, and you probably know this number better, but isn't it like a... The average two-bedroom condo in Oahu is like $1.2 million or something. It's some absurd number, right? Yeah, I don't know the exact number, but I do know that the average single-family residence in Oahu, the average of the island just went over a million dollars, I believe. For a single residence, over a million dollars. Average, yeah. Yeah, so that's kind of what I'm talking about, like where it seems like unless you're generationally, uh, you know, kind of set up, that's a really hard starting place for a million dollars like that's a really hard place to enter the market at you know yeah 100 percent. i can definitely see people's uh frustration with that i mean even my home i feel very fortunate in my home i mean one of the best investments i've ever made but you know like the, the equity on it has just gone up and up but there's just it, it doesn't it doesn't transfer because unless i move somewhere else right like yeah. I'm not going to get anything better. It doesn't matter how much this house has gone up in value. I'm not going to get anything better than what I've got. It's basically monopoly money. Yeah. You have a bunch of equity in your house, but you sell your house. What what else are you going to get into? You got to live on your boat and have a bunch of money in the bank. Yeah. So that's it. Unless you unless you unless you leave Hawaii, it's not. Well, that's not a reality with kids. Let's be honest. You know, like. Yeah. So I was going to say you can't raise your kids on a boat. No, can't real not on a commercial fishing boat. Anyways, I mean, maybe you could, but. That probably isn't a good long-term solution. I actually really like having my house. Uh, a, you know, I used to think I didn't really need a house. I like having my house for other fishermen when they're when they're visiting. I like to have, you know, um, a place for other fishermen to crash. So a lot of times, I just keep my house open for people that are coming in for the summer or out of town. And uh, we've jokingly nicknamed uh, this Captain K's home for wayward fishermen because. Half the time, I usually have, you know, somebody from somewhere in the world coming or going. And sometimes I'm gone so much, sometimes it's almost just passing by, like, hey, how's it going? But I like to keep, uh, I like to always keep a room or two available for uh, transient fishermen. Um, You know, uh, a lot of people over the years have have stayed here. And I actually stole that name for the, the, or, 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 or someone blessed the name on me after Brad Kraft, you know, from Cairns, Australia. Like, we, we jokingly name him, uh, same thing. It was Crafty's home for wayward fishermen because he would take in all his strays. And uh, such a good guy, Crafty. Legend down there. I will definitely get him on this podcast as well. I'm in town with a little Crafty. Have you? Yeah. 
Are the podcast okay stories or nothing I can remember? <laughs> well, that's how you know it was a big night. Uh, you know, that's funny you should say that. So, when we're on the subject, I was going to ask you on this because you have traveled a lot fishing in your career. Where are you from originally? First of all, how did you, how did you find yourself in Kona, Hawaii? Before you were doing real estate, you were a fisherman, and that's how we initially met. So how how did you find yourself? Where are you from, and how did you find yourself here? I'm from originally. I'm from San Jose, California, which is inland. But my I was always lucky enough to have a father who owned a boat about 45 minutes drive to the coast. And um, I think when I was about eight years old, he bought a boat and put it in the Santa Cruz Harbor. And so every weekend through the salmon fishing season, which is like back then was from 1st of April every year through like the end of September, I think. At least one day out of the weekend during the season, we would be over there fishing, fishing salmon. And then in the summer, summertime, We'd be out there, I don't know, three or four days a week growing up from when I was like eight years old till when I moved over here when I was about 19. And you guys would only be targeting salmon? Or? Mostly. Um, salmon was our bread and butter, but we'd catch halibut inshore, California halibut, and then certain times the albacore would move in in the summertime, in the late summer. And um, that's kind of when I got hooked on to like catching tunas and pelagic species you know and what does a trip like that look like out of california when you guys were going out like what what time you're leaving i mean because albacore fishing in hawaii is so different than say Uh, over there yeah albacore fishing in california we'd have to get up real early like leave the harbor a few hours before dark around like three and three in the morning and then chug out there and average distance we would run is about 40 miles either you know straight out in front of the harbor usually you would end up a little bit north northwest of the santa cruz harbor but um the albacore fishing was awesome for me as a kid you know because they're fairly easy to pull in but they pull a lot harder than a salmon and that's the first time i actually like saw tunas boiling around the boat we would fill the live well up with pinhead anchovies and pop one of their eyeballs out so they'd be jumping around on the surface and the tunas would come and boil around the boat eating them and it was just a lot of fun and definitely got my adrenaline pumping as a young kid and I was hooked. Well, where, where so how would you guys even find them? How would, like, for, for for recreational guys, like, you would work with a group, like, how would you even know where to look? Like, are you looking for bird piles? Like, how do you, how do you know they're running? Like, how do you know to take that trip? Mainly it was the surf, sea service temperature charts we oh. would look at. And um, you go to the, I don't know if it, was, it wasn't a NOAA website, whatever website it was, and it would show the SSTs. And the funny thing is, probably still is, I never look at SSTs anymore, but... Your, your surface... Sea surface temperature chart. Okay, yep. And um, if it was cloudy that night or whatever, you wouldn't get a read. So you'd only get the sea surface temperature chart if it was clear. So sometimes you wouldn't really know. But basically, you look for the break from when the water... The average temperature of the water there is around 55, like low 50s to 58 degrees. Then once you got above 58, you really wanted like the 62 degree water. But a lot of times there would be a defined, defined, um, you know, mark there from where it jumped from like 58 to 60, 59 to 62, something like that. That's a pretty big break. And uh, that would, most of the times I would, that would kind of 
give you a guide as to if you should be going or if you shouldn't. You know, a lot of times that water would be pushed off 100 miles off the coast, but then in late July, August, it would get pushed in sometimes as close as like 12 miles. So would the fish be on the hot side or the cold side? Definitely the hot side. Hot side. They don't like to come in colder than 58 degrees. But basically, you're just looking for like a solid break. Okay. And that's where we would run to to start. That's a lot of... Um... A lot of long lining uh, around here, I mean, or even what greatly affects our fishing too, is looking for those breaks. Two degrees would be like a really severe break for us. Like typically yeah. over here, if we find like a one degree break, that's pretty strong. Sometimes yeah. it's only like, um, you know, maybe a half a degree, but like one degree. But if you saw two, that'd be a really extreme break. Mostly what we look for out here though, is actually the subsea surface temperature mm-hmm. um, because the surface temp um, as you kind of said, is, uh, you know, one, when it's cloudy and stuff, you don't necessarily get the best reading, that, you know, because it's a model, right? So right. clouds can affect it. Um, and then also um, just localized wind can affect it up to like a degree, you know, yeah. and, that, and, and if you're looking for a one degree uh, temperature break and the wind is changing at a one degree off the surface. So um, we looked, or they still look at a lot of models, usually kind of like at the 100, 200, 300 meters, and um, look for breaks there. And like the, the magic number I've seen, um, like when you're at like, a hun- like 150 meters, you know, is like kind of if you get, and, and the reason they notice it's, it's kind of like religion. You either really believe your charts or you don't. Like you either have to have full faith because everything's based on a model, right? So you right. either have to have full faith in this and the system you're using and then adjust accordingly and you, like because you'll find that a lot of times the charts aren't super accurate as far as their currents current seems to really mess with them but a lot of times the breaks in the temperatures are pretty accurate you know mm-hmm. um but i the magic i've kind of found is like in that like uh, 62 degrees it's kind of like down that that depth is kind of like the magic 62 to like 62.6 you know when when we're seeing that 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 is um, that's kind of like the magic temp, you know. Like I, I really I really like that. Maybe up to all the way up to like sixty four. But if it gets like when the water gets really really hot around Hawaii, um, you get a lot more bycatch. You get the yellowfin, the skipjacks, things like that. But it gets harder to find the big eyes, and so that's kind of a depth that you know a lot of a temperature that a lot of guys will literally drive days and days to kind of if they're looking for that temperature break, but. Right. Well, that's really cool. Um, would they have big bird piles when you found them? Or? There no. would be random bird piles, but not like you would see in Central America or going to Mexico or something like that. Um, I'm not sure why. Because on the inside, when you're salmon fishing, you have all the sheer waters, and you see big bird piles salmon fishing, but not, not so much the albacore. Honestly, the albacore is real hit or miss for us when, when I was growing up. Like We never really got like really into it you know it would be kind of more of a novelty to go out there and catch them would you guys have any encounters with marlin when you were albacore fishing no never we were always too far north there's they catch striped marlins a lot further south of of monterey bay where yep. where i grew up but uh no nothing too special other than the albacore ever see a great white honestly i'd like to say i did and i never have Pretty much everybody else I know in that harbor that grew up fishing there has all seen them, yep. and uh, I never did. The um, best great white story I have, though, is uh, 
this old guy, he's still, go, he's still kicking. He must be in his mid-80s by now. Leroy Cross is his name, and he, he always parked his boat next to my dad's boat. My dad's boat slip is G32 in the Santa Cruz Upper Harbor, and his is G33, and he's still there. And he was up halibut fishing off of Onionuevo Island, and a lot of times when it's windy, you throw your drift sheet out to slow your drift down. And sure enough, they're fishing. And this great white comes and circles his boat. He's got his big drift shoot out. And the shark somehow ends up getting tangled up in his chute. And he's in a good sized boat, like a 26 foot, um, what's the name of those boats? Olympic, 26 foot Olympic little cabin in there. And the shark ends up getting tangled in the parachute. In his parachute, big one like you know at least 15 footer or something and he doesn't know what to do and it's a hard boat he's an old guy and it's a hard boat to get around up to the bow it takes you a bit because the cab is so big but um anyways he went up there and cut his drift chute off and the thing ended up getting out of it and he went around and grabbed his chute back because it was still on the float but that was a that was the craziest white shark story i'd heard I'd have to imagine there was a bit of commotion going on. He said the thing was going absolutely apeshit. Oh, I'm sure. Probably lucky he didn't rip the whole like cleat off or something like that. Yeah, um, there's plenty of, plenty of white sharks in that region or just at the southern end of the red triangle there. Well, you used to surf, right? Or you still do surf? Oh, yeah, still surf as and, much as I can. And never, no, no great white encounters in California when you were surfing? No, knock oh. on wood. Um, I actually know... A lot more people with shark stories from over here. Oh, is that right? Tiger shark. Oh, stories. tigers, yeah. But yeah. Um, no, lucky enough, never uh, had an encounter, and hope to never have an encounter with them. Yeah, no, those tiger sharks—they're always around. I was talking about those last night. There, there's a lot of them around, but you know, for the amount of sharks that we have around, really not that many attacks. But yeah. I can remember one day I was sitting at pine trees and just like. It was a really kind of like mediocre kind of surf type day. And um, I saw this tiger shark go rolling by. The, there was like three guys sitting out there. It's at like, pine trees. At pine trees, yeah. And they're kind of all sitting in the bay, the, the area called the bay, you know, which is kind of like the kid, the kid zone, as you know, but our listeners wouldn't. And uh, I saw this tiger shark, and all three of the guys are just like talking story, and they got their back turned, and this thing just goes right behind them. I watch it go like, keep on by. It's like it just kept going on its path, and none right of them. Up, right outside the lineup. Yeah, right outside, and none of them ever noticed it. I was just sitting there, and, I, and it just kept going on its way. It didn't bother them or anything, but the thing was massive, and I was just like laughing. And one of the guys came in, I'm like, man, how's that shark? And he's like, what shark? I'm like, that tiger that went by. He's like, yeah, right. <laughs> and I'm like, I'm not kidding, dude. Like, so, they're there, you know, like, it's just... Yeah. You know, well, you know that, that diver that got, has a torpedo tours boat, Mike? I do know Mike. I don't, I don't know really well. I don't know what his last name is, but we used to, I used to work on the monkey biz just two steps down from him, and we, he used to grab the carcasses off, like, the tunas and mahis we would catch and go and palu in front of the green can, and he would free dive with them. And he was adamant that as long as you were in, like, the best visibility possible which is common for most of the areas that we have around the big island that they wouldn't eat you and it kind of makes his theory is proven true and from my data like the three guys that i know that have gotten attacked have been at kiholo bay and up in kohala where 
the visibility was like you know less than 20 feet yeah. so i don't know as long as you're surfing or diving in an area with that has good visibility according to mike you're all right well yeah i mean uh it is kind of amazing that no one has been bit in front of that harbor like because the amount of people that purposely go looking to interact with tiger sharks i don't know i mean i myself i'm not even gonna lie i you know i uh i've gone out and i've i've experienced it and it's incredible and i one day did it and the thing was super mellow uh the, the shark that showed up was very mellow and i had this real kind of like uh you know like real kind of like uh not humbling but kind of like a real relaxed sensation like the way the shark was and i was like oh wow man it really makes me rethink how these sharks are are, are you know how we think about sharks and uh nate dog went with us you know yeah and uh nasty nate nasty nate went with us and uh same thing he was with us and i just like you oh, know he's super- afraid of sharks i bet he was tripping yeah, but the same thing. We both were like, wow, that was really kind of very spiritual. And like, Was Nate in the water with you? Yeah, we're both diving. We no. Both, yeah, yeah. For real. Yeah, yeah. We went and... Um, How I, long ago was this? Earlier uh, in, 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 in... It was in 2020. Oh, wow. Yeah, I don't... It, you're not technically supposed to go there, so I'm just not going to mention the dive operation we went with. But yeah. you're not technically supposed to go in there, but... Um, or you're not supposed to look... You're not specifically supposed to go looking for well, him. You were just diving, and a shark happened to swim. Yeah, and a shark happened to to swim by where some bait had accidentally fallen out of a boat. Mm-hmm. And um, so the first day we did it, it was really magical. But I was super bummed. I'm like, man, I should have brought a GoPro. And then the next day I went, and the shark, and it was still great. It was magical. But the next day, the shark didn't have the same vibe at all, man. Really? It was like really toey and like. I don't know if the day before it was just really fat and happy and like mm-hmm. it didn't have the same energy at all. And, it, and if my first dive had been like that, uh, you know, I've, I've dove with them in other times, but it was never like that one time was really like the in front of the harbor was like really kind of like, wow, these things are great. But I've been around them a couple other times where I'm like more and it was more like I was kind of like my heart was pounding on my chest because they were in spear fishing type scenarios and right. they weren't like. They were fucking there for They're business. For yeah. New. Yeah. But you know, like the closest I've ever gotten done by a shark out of all the years, like spear fishing and everything, I almost went down. It wasn't from a, uh, a tiger or a great white or anything. It was from a whaler shark. You know those ones on the reef? Oh, yeah. Bronzies. Bronzy, my God. This thing, it, I, it was like the top of, or top of the bottom of Ribbon Reef 6, I think. And uh, somebody had probably gone spear fishing through there the day before. And I shot this trout. I shot this coral trout. And uh, stone shot wasn't even like, you know, there was no, there was no like quivering or anything like that. You know, it was just like fucking, uh, cheers, buddy. The thing was stone dead. And so I didn't even think anything of it. I didn't see any sharks around. This thing rolled up over the edge and we were pretty far up. So I wasn't really thinking sharky either. And I shot this coral trout and I'm pulling the thing up. And this bronze whaler comes up from underneath me full speed. Out of nowhere. Out of nowhere. Grabs the thing underneath me and gets wrapped up in my spear gun and actually got the leader, like, you know, the, the 400-pound leader and stuff, in its mouth. So it took the fish and it bit off my spear. It's all connected to your shot. Yeah. To the well, gun. well, I hold on to the gun and it breaks off the 400 pounds. And so I've lost the spear. I've lost the spear, but I've got – and I thought I've lost, the fish is gone, the spear is gone, but – I, I want to like dive down and get my 
get my spear back, right? Yeah. So I, I'm like, you know, it wasn't very deep where it was. So I dove to the bottom. It was like maybe like 18 feet or something. I get my spear thinking like, fuck, that was like so hectic. This thing's going to be gone, right? Right. But that wasn't what happened at all. This fucking thing kept circling me. But it ate the, already ate the fish. Ate the already fish ate off the, the spear. It got tangled in the spear. It ate the trout. It like just shook the fucking thing off. And the spear fell to the bottom. So I was waiting for a while. I went down, get my spear. Kind of like the thing kind of fucked off. And I thought, all right. I dove down to the bottom to get it. And I have like this, I, I, I get the spear and I get up. And this fucking thing is like right here again. And so I like, I, I, I take the gun, I shove it in the head. I hit it with the fucking thing thinking like, all right, it's going to fuck off. So I'm like, I'm swimming back towards the boat and I feel this tug. And a fucking thing has grabbed my flipper, you know, like my fin. I'm like, holy fuck. So I've hit this thing now. I turn around. I kept hitting this thing and it kept coming. And I have never experienced anything like this. And I've been around a lot of sharks. Like, and this was the closest I got. And I was screaming to the boat because I remember thinking like, these guys are going to be sending a letter to my kids, you know, like right. this fucking thing didn't want to leave me alone. And it was like, every time I turned my back on it, it kept coming. And like, I was trying to like get my heart rate lower, but no matter what I did, it just, it wouldn't fuck off. And you know, it was thing was big around his barrel. Like, it's not like one of those shitty, like white tip ones. It's like right. the real deal. Solid. solid. Like I, I bet you it was probably, if I was to guess, I would bet you it was 600 pounds probably. It was like, it was a fucking serious just that big old box head, like nasty. Not really aggressive one. Super aggressive. And uh, I thankfully, uh, the guys kind of heard me screaming because they could tell something was up. And a few guys came over. They started heading my way. And fortunately, when the other guys showed up, there was like another three guys. Then the uh, the thing finally left me alone. But man, I, I, I would be lying if I said I wasn't scared shitless. That was like... That was the closest I ever got to to getting really bad. The thing actually bit my bit my fin. That really. that was that was pretty scary because uh, I like to think of myself as being like really calm in the water, and I could not get my heart rate. After it came after me, like it came up after me so many times after already eating the fish that I was just like kind of almost in shock. Like, why is this thing still? You know, I've had him grab uh, fish before, but. And then, I don't know if you know this or not, and uh, you know Brett Jameson, my old business partner? Yeah, of course. Whitey. Whitey, yeah. Uh, and I'm definitely going to get him on this podcast. Did you know he was attacked by a, a shark? No. Last no, year? No. Yeah, he got... Or just recently. Yeah, he got all fucking ripped up. I haven't up. seen him in years. Oh, you haven't seen him in years? Yeah. Well, we'll get him on this podcast, but uh, he had an incident working down in the Bahamas. Like, he, you know, he's running a sport fishing boat, and... Uh, he was handing up this, uh, this, I'm not sure what the fish was, that his boss wanted to go uh, spear fishing, And so he was spear fishing like with his boss and the mate was back in the boat and he was handing up this fish up to the, the, the mate on the boat and this fucking bull shark grabbed him from behind and uh, and bit him and he got, got him pretty good. It was one of those things they were able, it's very fortunate, it's, it's one of those scenarios where he's very lucky that a lot of those uh, Marlin operations have like a lot of money and like, friends in high places because they were able to get him a uh, private jet. Um, I think it was the Marlin Darlings owner. If that's who it is, shout out to them. That's who I think I heard it was. Uh, their per- their private jet where it was able to fly him back to Miami. And that's like what saved his life and saved his arm and everything. So that wasn't that long ago. But yeah, you just never know what day it's going to be, you know? I don't know. Yeah. So. You never know. Well, speaking of the Great Barrier Reef and sharks, <laughs> I would like to touch... Uh, you have caught, or at least weighed, two granders, is that right, or more? Yeah, no, I weighed one here at Blue Marlin and one in Australia. Let's hear both those stories, because they're both great stories. Well, 
the first one was only my second season fishing here. Maybe it was my third actually. In 2009, I was just working on the lower end boats in the harbor and just trying to make a name for myself. When you say lower end boats, what do you mean by that? <laughs> well, the boats that don't have as good of clientele base that maybe aren't as good as condition as they should be and aren't paying their crew as much as there were, basically. Uh, boats that can't normally, you know, afford to hire or have a reputation to hire, like, proper crewmen, you know? Mm -hmm. I was 20 years old when I first started and would just take any job that I could get. But anyways, um, Chip Van Moles, he was finishing up, like, a 18-month dry dock, um, rebuilding a 38-foot Bertram, and he was looking for a crew, and he hired hired me on, and I thought that that was like that I had made it big. I'm working for Chip, and um, Chip, by the way, is a really well-known um, captain here out of Kona, Hawaii. Correct me if I'm wrong. He's got the most granders. Is that right? As a charter I think boat he's captain, he's tied for Gene Vanderhoek. Oh, is that what it is? Tied. I believe so. Well, don't quote me on that. I think, okay. I think they each got four or five or something. Anyway, so I think, um, I think it's four. Yeah. I, f I forgot about Gene. I guess because Gene's not actively fishing anymore, right? Just count Gene's arm. He's got him all tattooed on his forearm. Next time you see him. Really? Good, <laughs> good thing they don't do that in Australia. <laughs> they, they, they have full tribal tattoos. So on a side, on a side note, uh, Bo Jennings somehow was fishing with Gene. I don't know if he was here in Australia. And Gene told Bo, hey, like, that's cool. Like, how many granders you caught? And Bo told him how many. I don't know how many it was. And uh, it was a lot, a lot more than four. Yeah. And uh, Bo sarcastically told him, my arm's not long enough, man. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well. It's one of the better stories I've heard. Oh, that's funny. I was, <laughs> I was just thinking that organically. I'd never heard that, but yeah, that's no disrespect to Gene Van. Oh, Bo, Bo got mentioned last night on the podcast as well. That was a. He Bo. was he was involved in a, a grander killing story yesterday. So small um, world. Bo's a great mentor and just a great human being all around. Stoked it, uh, to even like have Bo even know who I was, you know, when I first met him and have a few beers with him. He's definitely kind of the benchmark of what I was trying to do when I was a young crewman and stuff. But anyways, to get back on the Blue well, Marlin story that we caught with Chip. Right. So back with Chip. Basically, uh, Chip hired me on and I was super pumped. Um, I thought I, I thought I made it big and I had because Chip has all these great clients and reputation and all this and that. And, um, uh, Anyways, leading up to the first summer, just got the boat out of dry dock. The thing's basically brand new. The only original part was the bulkhead in the hull. Everything else was, was a brand new boat. And uh, we had done a few charters. And what was the name of the boat? Monkey Biz 2. Okay. And we had done a few charters. And uh, my dad flew into town and wanted to go fishing before we got busy for the summer. And my dad likes to catch football-sized tuna fish and wahoos. Like, that's his bread and butter. He has no patience for modern fishing. He wants action. He wants action. He wants to have a rod in his hand with a little sardine at the end and at the end of his line and have it get picked up by a 20-pound tuna, and he's in heaven, which I don't blame him for. But I always like to catch the biggest fish that was swimming out in the ocean, whether it took me, you know, 30 days of waiting or whatever. Anyway, so um, 
we trolled all the way down to Milley, like, you know, 30 miles south of the harbor, trying to catch them at Ono, and we couldn't catch one, and decided to marlin fish on the way back up. We just basically did a big U-turn, 30 miles down, 30 miles back, and we get in front of Kaigi Point, right in front of the harbor, at about 3 or 4 o'clock in the afternoon, and I'm making ceviche from a Ono we had caught the day before, and... Um, sitting at the city looking through the bulkhead window and I see this big old marlin bill just lazily swinging back behind the stinger for this lure back there just kind of windshield wiping behind the just lure slowly like slow motion and chips up there cruising he's like blasting his like uh his classic rock music station just like vibing out by himself and um I come out and like, there he is on the stinger, on the stinger. And uh, Chip's like, holy shit. And he's got his, Chip's got his rod up there off the flybridge. And um, after a few goes at it, Chip finally hooks it. And uh, we get her on, clear all the lures. And my friend, my late friend Dennis was on the boat too. So it was my dad, Dennis, Chip and I, just the four of us. What class of rod and reel was it if it was up on the flybridge? He had an 80, a, okay. like a it. proper one. He had a, a, like those dual, dual reels. Yep. And Chip always keeps his gear meticulous. And we had we were, it was spooled up with a 100-pound suffix Titanium. So it was like over-test. It probably broke out 120. wasn't much different than Fishing running a Tiagra 130 with Amelon. And um, anyways, we get it on. And the thing, we, I clear all the lines. Dennis helped me clear the lines, get Dad in the chair. And the fish, like, would not stop Greyhound jumping. Just boom, boom, boom. It seemed like eternity. It was probably at least a minute before it actually went down. And um, we were real aggressive with it. Chip, Did you know? No. You, you didn't know. When you saw it, you Chip didn't Chip said it was, like, 8.50. I was, like, and I was, like, bloodthirsty at the time, you know, like a young kid. And I just wanted to, like, hang anything up that was, like, over 300 pounds. It was just to get a... You just wanted to weigh one. Yeah. What was the biggest fish you'd weighed at this point? Uh, I caught, a, like, a 740 or 770 with Gus, like, the year prior with Gus Sellers. Oh, yeah? But, um, yeah, so I had caught, like, a few in the fours and that one 700-pounder. And then we get this thing on, and Chip's like, oh, yeah, it's, like, over eight. I'm like, let's kill it. And Chip's like, no, 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 we don't need to kill it. I'm like, come on, Chip, let's kill it. And he's like whatever, do whatever the fuck you want then. I'm like, okay. <laughs> so I tied him off. <laughs> and uh, when he says tie him off, it means he tied off the flying gaffs. So we tied our three flying gaffs off. And yeah, so the, fi- the fish made a bunch of mistakes and not to our advantage, obviously, where it, it didn't really stop jumping for the first minute or two. And um, it was just pissing blood too. And we got like a, a 9-0 single hook and a small 11 or a 9-inch bullet. And um, anyways, the fish finally goes down and we go straight up. We're real aggressive. It was the end of the day. And Where's the bleeding come from? Did this thing swallow the lure? It's coming from his mouth. But from the top of his mouth. Top there's of his this, mouth. How weird. There's If you look at a marlin bill, you know, obviously it's like shaped like a V. And if you get it up underneath there, there's some sort of vein, which I only know from this fish. And it got it somehow. And I actually have a photo that Dennis took. He was sitting on top of the bridge and with those old school um, digital cameras. Now we all got iPhones. But he actually got a good shot of, of the fish in the prop wash with the black smoke billowing out. And there's 
red or pink spray in with the fish's head coming out of the water. Wow. But anyways, um, I'm trying to make this short story short. Cause well, you don't have to. That's the beautiful thing about this place. Right, this perfect. is literally the type of podcast. And what I actually really enjoy about podcasting is that this thing could be 25 minutes long or it could be two hours. But the important part is just that the story is told. Well, if you ask Chip, he might tell you a different story. But this is the way that I remember it. The thing finally went down after just greyhounding for what seemed like an eternity. Sometimes when they're greyhounding, they'll like jump in a circle, you know, because they're just on their one side, so like a real gradual circle. So we go from like backing up full rack reverse towards the fish. The thing's going away, but then it starts arcing in a, like a U-turn, basically. Before we know it, the thing is coming straight at the boat. So with those electronic controls, you can't just push the controls from... Full rack reverse to straight forward. There's a big delay there. So we realize the things, Chip realizes the things coming at the boat now. And so we go from going all the way backwards to trying to get away from the thing. And just as he got the boat going the opposite way, the fish was so close. It was only within five minutes of fighting the thing. The fish is jumping at us. My dad's reeling as fast as he can. Just wah, 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 wah. Slack, 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 slack. To all of a sudden, kapow! And the fish was so close that he just cranked the swivel right into the rod tip. And as, oh my god! As soon as that rod, the swivel hit the rod tip. Luckily, we were got out of our little hole that the transom had dug, and we're going ahead. And as soon as the swivel hit the rod tip, we're going the opposite way. Just fish took off, going the opposite way. Luckily. So now the fish is jumping out again in the back, and like we're all like frazzled, like holy shit, did that just happen? <laughs> what the hell has happened? And um, did a bunch of other jumps, started going down. Chip's like, go ahead, just put the drag up all the way past the button. And now the rod's tacoed over. We got probably at least sixty-five pounds of drag, if not more. And uh, my dad's so funny; he never really, like caught a fish in the chair or anything. He's telling me that the reel's broken. Like, the reel's broken. I can't crank. <laughs> I'm like, Dad, there's like 70 pounds of drag on there. You got to just wait for the rod tip to ease up with pressure. If the line's coming off the reel, you're not going to be able to get a crank on that rod handle, on that reel handle. It's <laughs> awesome. <laughs> it's broken, right? It's broken. Like, no, it's not broken. Anyways, the fish freaking comes back up, paddling under the surface, and we get after it real aggressively, and now the thing is close. Chip's saying, yeah, get ready. We can all see it. It's paddling just a foot under the surface. And um, he gets me the leader off of the port corner of the transom. And the fish is paddling away. And as I grab the leader, it's a 400-pound leader, I get like one or two sets of wraps. And the thing just kind of spurts out of my hand, which wasn't a big deal. I have to let go, let a bit of line, you know, 20, 30 feet a line off and then cranked it back up i got the leader again off the corner same side and um now the fish kind of has an option the fish can either go left or right if he goes right he's going to kind of swing up the side and if he goes left he's going to go be going straight away so um fish chose to turn right and chip pivoted the boat i got the leader low right up to my right up to my waist got about 
maybe five feet a liter behind me, and then the fish turned to its right and started swimming up the side of the boat. Chip is able to pivot the boat, and sure enough, I just got, wasn't taking a wrap or anything, just pinch, 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 pinch. I got all of the leader behind me, so I'm right there with the fish now. Took two wraps on my right side, two tuna wraps on my left, so I got double wraps in each hand, and the fish is right there just swimming like a big old crocodile, just black-backed up and down like a big old snake right along the side of the boat, like it's hitting the side of the boat. And my buddy Dennis, the whole plan was, my buddy Dennis is this electrician surfer friend of mine who had been fishing a couple of times, but he had no idea what he's doing. And he's got the gaff in his hand. And I'm yelling at him, gaff it, Dennis, gaff it. <laughs> and when the fish is that close and his back is sticking out of the water, it's right up against the hole, there's not really that good of a shot. You put your gaff in the water and there's nowhere to pull up. You're just going to pull up straight into the into the side up into the same side of the fish as you're putting the gaff in if that makes any sense you kind of want the fish a little bit further off the boat or the fish to lay over on its side to actually you know get engage the gaff head into the meat anyways he gets the shot and pulls up on it but the gaff was only in a few inches and up just, out just the same it. side and so we have the gaff in the fish but it's only in there a few inches on the same side of the fish, if that makes any sense. Yep. And so Chip comes down off the bridge, and this is where it gets a little bit fuzzy, where I think I dumped the one set of wraps, and I'm trying to help Dennis. I was trying to help him get the gaff in, because he kind of froze up. Anyways, I ended up losing about five feet a liter somehow. I don't know if it slipped out of my glove or what, what happened, but the fish, she ended up getting her head down, and now she's really Oof. pulling. And we're only on four, we only have 400 pounds, uh, Marlin Hard Memorial, whatever you call it. And now the fish is, pat is she's trying to get her head, well, she does have her head down, and now the tail's up in the air, smacking the transom, or the corner, rather. And uh, Chip grabs the other gaff, and he gets his hands all the way down as low as he can go, and pulls his gaff in, and simultaneously, I knew he was doing this, so I was trying to get it up as much as I could. And as he gets his gaff in, I break the leader in my hand. So Oof. now we're tight and we really only have one gaff shot the one that dennis had put in was was nothing didn't didn't have any significance and obviously he came down out of the bridge with one of the engines in gear and now the fit now we don't have we're not pulling her off her head so she has free range to swim wherever she wants and he's got luckily that that gaff shot that he had was miraculously perfect now the boat's still going ahead marlon comes up out the transom but the gaff attached to her, just going absolutely apeshit, thrashing around on the surface. Oh, like it blew the flying gaff out, like the pole just, too? Oh, yeah. Uh, pole, it took the whole gone. pole. Yeah, he somehow grabbed the pole. He was able to somehow get the pole. I don't even know what happened to the pole, honestly. But um, So now with the fish is out in the transom with the whatever length gaff rope we had. It was probably about 12 foot. And it's not back there thrashing the gaff like right in its shoulder. And he runs up there, takes the boat out of gear. I run down. I only had two gaffs tied up because I didn't have that much time. I ran up forward into the V-berth, grabbed the third gaff. As I come out into the cockpit with the third gaff in my hand, the gaff line's all tied around the pole. Um, the fish was just sit, just happened to be like swimming by broadside across the transom, and I just reached out and stroked it, but I didn't have it tied off. I was just a young kid, wasn't really thinking. 
Whatever. She was just stuck it with a third flying gap with the thir- third no, flying gap. It wasn't tied off. <laughs> Not tied off. Okay. Yeah. yeah. And Dennis came behind me and Dennis and I just got absolutely flogged just holding onto the gap pole. And um, somehow we got it up the got it up right against the transom and it's thrashing the transom, got all the scratches in the transom and got a meat hook in its face and got a somehow I was able to get a half hitch around its nose and pinned onto the cleat and that was it. Awesome. And this whole time our thing is like 850 pounds and Chip's like not happy because we just scratched you the just boat. just blew the boat apart that just came out of dry dock. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and uh, yeah, it was a big deal. Like the fish was still in the water. We didn't pull it onto the boat yet and we're all just like exhausted. I was like, holy shit. And then so it was a whole other 20 minute ordeal. We all just like took a break and like celebrated and drank some water before we tried to pull it into the boat. And then there's just four of us trying to pull the thing into the boat. And that took about 15 minutes to get it all the way in. But we were right in front of the harbor. At this moment, uh, did you know, hey, this might be bigger than 850? Or we're still thinking it's 850 pounds? I'm thinking it's like 850, 900. I didn't know what to expect. I didn't know what I was doing. And then not until we got tied up at the field up. We got the lines on the dock, and they're lowering the scale down. Chip put his measuring tape onto the, got the short measurement and like a girth estimate. Do you remember what the short was? Yeah, 138. Oh, nice fish. And um, Chip is whispering to me like, this freaking thing might go. I'm like, you think so? For real? I didn't know what a 138 short measurement meant at that time. And uh, sure enough... I remember my dad was up on the dock drinking beers and like asking, he's, he's like infatuated with like asking people how much fish weigh. Like he'll go and charter these boats in Mexico and be like, how much do you think this tuna weighs? And be like a 50, 80 pounder. And the guys will like tell him. And then my dad like has a secret scale like in his bag and then he'll, he'll weigh the fish and like try to call the guys out. I thought he told me he was 80 and it's like really 50 just like <laughs> to mess with them. Yeah, yeah. But he was, I remember... Sam Toy was up there, Boyd DeSoto, all the, all the guys were up there watching the scale. And he, my dad was running around asking everybody how much they thought it weighed. And nobody called it a grand except for Boyd. Boyd said he's like at least, that thing's at least a thousand. I remember Boyd, uh, my dad told me that Boyd said that. And then yeah, sure enough, it was a thousand sixty four. Awesome fish, man. And with your dad, does it get much better than that? No, it was like truly a dream come true. I was just like completely over the moon for like a year after that. I was just you shouldn't even man. couldn't even believe that it happened. And like and and, and like for, for the guests at home that don't know Kona Hawaii, when you say it was right in front of the harbor, you're like, yeah, how many minutes away from the actual harbor mouth? Like a five minute run. Like five minute run. Like yeah, you're right there. Yeah, you're on the eight hundred fifty fathom line, um, just slightly south of the harbor entrance. Isn't that incredible? Well, I guess, I don't know. We would have been like three miles offshore or something from the harbor. It's so funny. And, you know, I've had a lot of great fishing off Kaivi. And sometimes people's perception that have no idea about marlin fishing, particularly in Kona, Hawaii, that charter a boat. Like, you know when you were talking about some of the lower end charters? Yeah. There was this terrible review. Back when I used to charter fish, there was this awful review that was on the internet of me. And one of the things was, I, I, I just would, I, I remember it pissed me off, but it was also comical because, uh, you know, I would be commercial fishing 150 miles or, you know, like honestly, 138 miles to 
to 100, well, usually around 138 miles. Sometimes we go out to weather booths, we like 270 right. miles out. But most of the time, like 138 miles offshore for the majority of the year. And then I'd be marlin fishing in the summer, and I was running this kind of... The sundowner. No, no, this wasn't on the sundowner. I'd rather not say the name because it still keeps going. And I, I, have, I know but, about you talking yeah, about. Yeah, you know what I'm talking about. It, you know, it's not the... Uh, not the nicest boat, but it got the job done. It gets a mix of clientele, some of the best clientele in the world and some like really mediocre. And I got this one charter and we, you know, we trolled around. I remember this. We trolled around in front of the harbor because that's where the bite was. It was right in front of Kaibi. And uh, we actually missed. We went 0 for 3 on blues that day, which is what a lot of people don't realize. If you get three blue marlin bites in a day, that's a good day of fishing. Unfortunately, that's above average day of fishing. Right. But unfortunately, if you don't catch them sometimes, people just don't think like... Well, they have no idea. They have no idea. So sometimes expectations are unrealistic. But there was this review, and I don't know if it still exists, if you look far enough back, but their review said, uh, we had this young captain who was scared to leave the sight of land. <laughs> all, all he did was go back and forth in front of the harbor. And he's like, we didn't even catch a marlin. We got three bites. What a ripoff. <laughs> like... like you gotta love TripAdvisor. Oh yeah, it was like it was just like classic. It was like I think it actually said I think like uh, I think it said Captain Smarty Pants was a, it was like Cap- that sounds about right. Yeah, yeah, it was like it was like Captain Smarty Pants was afraid to leave the sight of land, and I'm like, oh my god. I kept trying to explain to him over and over and over again, and uh, uh, but it was just one of those. It was just one of those ones where you know we love every charter. But sometimes, uh, I used to work for a guy. He would say there was that there are no bad charters until you don't have any, and I disagree with that. Actually, I I, I remember thinking like, mm, I don't know about that, man. Like I I understand from the business point that like any any money is better than no money, but like I you know I don't look at fishing like. As as a just a financial transaction, I'm sure you don't either, right? I mean, a lot of fishing right. is a passion; it's a of passion course. project. So, I had to laugh at that. So, <laughs> you caught this grander with your father mm-hmm. in uh, Kona, Hawaii. Now, I know that how, how many. Now, I know you've also caught a real big one down in Cairns, Australia. Mm-hmm. Okay, how many years did you fish Cairns? And how long was it before you put one in the boat? Um, I think I fished seven seasons there, maybe six. And uh, I think that was my fourth season. Okay. We put put one in the boat. Obviously, we caught a lot similar size to that. We never had the opportunity to keep them. Yeah. Did you ever keep any other fish when you were down there in six seasons? Um. Killed a like a nine fifty. Well, the died got tail wrapped. Yep. I got the bill for it in my house actually. Who who was that with? Sparrow. Oh, with Sparrow. Mm-hmm. Can you go ahead and tell us a story about killing a grander down in Australia? Yeah, so I was I was fishing with my favorite captain on the planet. Um, his name is Ian Ford. Call him Wobbles. I don't know how we got that name. I believe because he like broke both of his legs on a Harley Davidson accident, but. He might have had that name prior because he was wobbling home because he always likes to drink rum. I'm not positive. That happens. Um, but him and I just had this amazing connection. And we were always just super good friends. Anyways, I felt really bad because he had this big like 14-day charter that canceled. And I'm working for him. 
and so now we're stuck at Yorkie's Knob. He liked to he liked to um, he liked to put the boat up there because I think it was a little bit cheaper and it keep him out of trouble. Yorkie's Knob is which boat is this? The Hot Shot at the time. Hot Shot, right? He's right. at Forty Three O'Brien, and uh, anyway, so we were stuck up there, and he just had this big charter cancel and the mackerel. Um, Tim Richardson was and, looking for a crew. And maybe we should explain to people listening that the average charter in cans is is a liveaboard charter, right? Yeah, about that, the, the shortest charter we would do would be three nights, four days. Average would be about six nights, seven days. Am I wrong? Um, well, I don't know. I, I fished the reef a lot of years over different situations. I've done day trips out of cans, honestly. And when I was a younger man... Mm-hmm. Uh, they were. I mean, when when the bite is like on Linden Bank, yeah, it was great because season. we would go out and catch giant fish, and then we would go into my favorite bar in the world, which is actually one of the questions I'm going to ask you later. The Wool Shed is like my favorite <laughs> favorite bar in the world. I just love that place. I can remember having some days where went out and just caught some like a sea creature, right? You know, like actually a couple of the biggest ones I ever saw were on day trips. You know, because you know when they get in on the bank, they're yeah. there. That's actually how I got suckered into my first boat down there. My first day out on charter, I went out with these guys. It was a six-person share charter. You're joking? No, I swear to God. And uh, the owner of this boat had a had a pub, and so they could win. Graham. Graham. Yeah. So this is on the Shikari. I I wasn't. Yeah. So it's on the Shikari. It was a boat. Was formerly called the uh, the True Blue. And uh, I go out with these guys. I met them on the dock. And uh, when I met them, the first time I ever met them, actually, they had a giant marlin that had died that was sitting on the deck. And I was just, like, blown away by how, how big this fish was. It was just, like, sitting on the deck. I'm like, are you – they're like, ah, it's not big enough to mate, to weigh it or anything. I'm looking at it, and I'm thinking, like, Jesus, that's got to be, you know – I mean, I was thinking, like, God, that must be close to a grand or something, you know. And uh, uh, Billy Spooner does all the mounts down there for the, – he came down and measured it. He's like, oh, yeah, it's over a grand. And, but, but the people didn't want to mount it, and they didn't want to pay to, to hang it up. And in cans, it's not like Hawaii where you can still weigh a fish. It's like a yeah. big a big ordeal. Like it's not like uh, things have really changed. Like the, the days of carrying big fish through the uh, streets are, are over, right? So anyway, so I met these guys. They had, a big, they had this big fish on the deck. And then I don't remember what happened. I, I went and I didn't immediately go fishing with them. But uh, I did go out like maybe a few days later or something. And um, with this guy named Decky Dave, which is kind of funny because it's kind of like Diamond Dave, but Decky Dave, and it was this former uh, Marine, uh, like a, like a, they call him a digger, yeah? Yeah, sub dig. Yeah. Dig, dig means like bro there, down there. Yeah, but, but he was like in the military. And actually kind of funny thing I remember about him was that uh, he had started smoking because in the Army down there, they'd have these breaks. And that uh, if... You were standing around. If you were standing around smoking a cigarette, they wouldn't give you a job. Like, oh, that guy's smoking a cigarette. But he didn't used to smoke, and so like they would always make him do all this bullshit. So he started smoking just so he wouldn't have to do all this extra bullshit. And then he had that addiction to that day, which is oh, kind of hilarious. Gosh. But but literally, he started smoking just to get out of having to do shit work all the time. So we got Decky Dave, and uh, I would love to get a hold of that guy now. I don't know what ever happened to him. He was like as legendary as they get. He was. He, uh, his, his girlfriend was a hooker and like, it was just like, it was a mess, but I don't know whatever happened to the guy. He, he, he was a great guy, but it was just classic. I'm like, I'm like, how do you, how, isn't it kind of hard dating a hooker? I mean, like, I'm like, how, like, 
how does that work? But anyways, that's a whole different story. So we go out with Decky Dave and um, we go out with Decky Dave and we have a day trip. We got six people. We got like, fuck, and it was like hilarious, dude. We got like uh, these different people. We got like these, uh, they, they had won the, from a pub. Pub, like he's got, Graham's got a pub, mm-hmm. you know? Of course. And uh, so they had won a day trip out on the Great Barrier Reef. The GBR. Yeah, out on the GBR, on the Shikari. Like, uh, so we're, we're on this boat and... Uh, First trip out, we're, we're rocking six 130 lures. So each person has wow. a rod. So it's a share charter. Which, Everybody pick a rod. Yep, yep. And so, uh, and then they like they would rotate like a number like on the hour or whatever. So everyone got to use all the rods. Another program. Yeah, yeah. So this we're share charter on the Great Barrier Reef. We're on Linden Bank. And uh, I'll just, man, I'll just never forget. So Graham, he's a classic. And I, I, I would love to get him on this show too. I, I, like, you have to. I mean, that guy's a living legend. You know what? I wanted to include him in my book, but I couldn't. You know why? Because I feel like he deserves a book of his own. Like I'm going to write a book just about the couple years I spent with him because it's just like a whole different period of my life. Like this will be a prime example and then we'll move back on to your story. But like I – so my first trip, we've got the share charter and the stinger goes off. And it's just like – and – I saw the bite, and but it, like it didn't look massive. I'm like, oh, it must be a billfish, though. Yeah, yeah. And I'm like, I'm like, oh, it must be a small one. But I should tell you this: the stinger when we were running uh, was a uh, one of those huge, like the the uh, Magnum uh, Moldcraft. So even the stinger is like a fucking like a 16 inch lure, and it's just going rank, rank, rank. And I thought, and I said, oh, small fish. But, you know, we were fishing 45 pounds of drag on the strike. And his drags are shot. <laughs> well, well, no, they were good, but I just had never really, like, I had never really fished 45 pounds of drag on the bite trolling before. So, like, yeah. he's like, I don't know, it might not be that. This fucking thing sticks its head out, and it's a goddamn animal. And I'm no like, way. holy fuck, right? So we got this guy, gets in the chair, and it's a chair charter. It's, it turns out to be, like, this bodybuilding guy, and... And this is the first time I'd ever experienced this. Like, you know, in the U.S. where you're generally like kissing everyone's ass the whole trip because you're working for a tip. Yeah. You know, no one's expecting a tip there. So he is like literally calling the guy in the chair. He's like, this guy's ripped, right? And he's like, oh come God. on, you pussy. Crank on that. Just flogging him. Just flogging him. He's like, I think your muscles are all fake. <laughs> it's like, what do you think this guy's on steroids? He's a real pussy. Like, he's calling the charter a pussy, what's, right? Like, what's the guy's name from um – from Jaws, the Quint. Yeah, this guy Graham reminds me exactly of Quint. That's who I think of when I think of Graham. Because yeah. I don't know. It, him but that then way. he's got that mustache too. He's got like this That's mischievous mustache where he's like, ha ha, where you can see him like twisting the end of his beard. So he's yelling it's at the this same guy, guy in my opinion. Yeah, in my head. Right, he's like the Jaws guy. He's right. my, my. Well, and because he's the biggest serial killer of sharks mm-hmm. that ever walked the earth. Like the guy has just murdered every shark exactly. there is and loved every one of them. So I mean, Captain Quinn from Jaws and Graham Johnson are, are pretty much the same, the same person in my head. They really are the same person. <laughs> just one's got an Australian accent. So fucking. He is just like laying into these people and like laying into this guy in the rod, just calling him a pussy and all this stuff. And eventually, Decky Dave gets the fucking gets the leader right, and we get this fish next to the boat, and it, it's pretty tired for being on a lure. It, mm-hmm. And uh, and it's like at this point, it is the biggest marlin I've ever seen in my life. At this point, and it's my first day on the reef. I'm like, this right. place is fucking incredible, right? And I'm like, 
And, and we had gaffs. He had gaffs tied off all over the place because he fished for junior world records with his son. So right. we had, literally had like six flying gaffs tied off. Perfect. And I go to grab the gaff, right? And uh, the guy in the chair is an American. Like I'm just instinctively thinking like in Kona. So the like, bodybuilder oh, guy's an American? He's an American. The guy in the chair, right? It's a split chair. And I go to grab the gaff and put it up. And, the guy, and he yells down. He goes, whoa, whoa, whoa. We don't kill him for yanks. And, like, <laughs> and I'm an American too, right? I'm like, I'm like what? He's like. He's like, cut that fucking thing off. We're not killing that for no fucking seppo. <laughs> I'm like, and I'm like, this is when I learned the word seppo. I'm like, seppo? And he's like, yank, you know, fucking septic tank, you fucking Americans. And like, this is my first day on the boat with this guy. And I'm like, this is like unbelievable. And I'm looking at like the biggest Marlin I've ever seen. This guy's yeah. calling me a fucking a septic tank. And the charter, he's calling a pussy. Well, there's a couple Germans on the boat, right? And so Decky Dave's got this fish next to the boat, and I'm about to cut it off. And, he, and, and the Germans look at this thing. There's like two Germans, and they're like, how big is this fish? And Graham yells down. He goes, it's bigger than Hitler's gas chamber. <laughs> and I'm like, oh, my God. Did you really just fucking say that? Like, What a legend. What is wrong with you? Like, I couldn't fucking believe that would, like I had just witnessed that, and like I would like to tell you that was like a one of a kind, but that's like why he's not included in my book is that I've got like three years of that. Right. Like, so I like I, like I I was just like in shock. He offended like every Everybody. single person on the boat. I could go on and on. I could do a whole podcast, but I think it'd be better to get him. But. My mm-hmm. first day on the Great Barrier Reef, I saw the big – I've caught bigger ones since. But that was the first the first day I fished on the Great Barrier Reef. We got a legitimate grander up to the boat that was the most tired, laid up, like would have been the biggest freebie gap shot of all time. And like – which you never, ever see down there. It's usually like yeah. freaking out. Right. And I just remember him yelling at me and put the gap away. <laughs> like, we don't kill him for fucking yanks down there. That is unbelievable. <laughs> oh, yeah. He was a fucking classic. So on to your – Great Barrier Reef fish. Oh, so basically, I was fishing with Wobbles, who I love to death, like a freaking family member. And um, we had this big charter cancellation, so we're just sitting on the boat. And Tim Richardson was looking for a crew because his guy had to, one of his guys had to leave early. And um, I got on there with Scuba Steve Hall, who's a legend in the industry he worked with um zach conde and cape verde forever he's just like an absolute character so him and i were working the deck together on like this seven day charter that i just hopped on because i had been working with wobs on the hot shot and i just hopped over there fish with um with the mackerel for like this seven day charter and mackerel's tim richardson tim richardson yep the mackerel anyways um the fishing was slow. I think like the first three or four days, we caught a, one or two small ones. And um, I guess everybody was going out to the tuna aggregation, which is a thing at the end of the season where the guys will go offshore 20 to 60 miles off of the reef, which is kind of abnormal, and um, troll lures around there. And so... When you say tuna, they're looking for the offshore yeah, piles of tuna. Yeah, they call it a tuna aggregation. They're out on the outside of the GBR up there off cans. And um, sometimes there'll be just big piles of tunas and bird piles everywhere. And the marlin will be mixing with them outside the reef, off the reef. 
10, usually it's like over 20 miles. I think we were like, end up like 30 miles, 40 miles off the reef. And we would have been, I don't know, 60 to a hundred miles off of cans. And, um, so we're up on, we're on the anchor on like ribbon reef number three that evening. And Tim comes down to Steve and I, as we were washing the boat up and he's like, Hey boys, get the lures ready. Check the hook rigs. We're going to go check out the tuna egg offshore tomorrow. And so Steve and I, we start, we call him Scuba Steve. Scuba Steve and I, we start going through the, through the lures and the hook rigs. And Tim has all this stuff rigged up on like 300 pound liter with these like janky Peter Pakula hooks that they use for like fishing off the Gold Coast or something. And Steve and I are looking, and these guys are, these guys are farmers, are charter. They're farmers from the Midwest somewhere. They're like corn farmers and they want to kill a grander. That's their, that's why they came to Australia. And uh, Steve and I are looking at each other. He's got this double twisted 300 pound mono with these like crappy Peter Pakula hooks on there as hook rigs. And he's like, oh no, those will be fine. Tim's like, oh, those will be fine. Just run those. And Scuba Steve and I. We're looking at each other like, these are not fine. We're trying to hang a thousand pounder for these farmer boys. They're going to tip us back if we freaking hang a big fish. And so the only other J hooks, because we always use circle hooks for, for marlin fishing on the reef, black marlin fishing. And so we're scrambling to find some solid thick gauge um, J hooks for putting in these trolling lures. And we found these offset black long line J hooks, the LP brand, I believe they are. And they're offset, which obviously you don't really want to be running in a lure. And then we found like some 900 pound cable and we made a bunch of hook rigs that night. And um, I... Just prepare here. We're gonna have to take a quick little break well, here, Ryan. This is a good time to go to the bathroom and grab another beer. Okay, so we're back. So, we're there fishing on the reef. We have these farmers from the Midwest. They got on the boat for seven days. They said they want to hang a grander and get it mounted. Fishing was slow on the reef. And uh, third day in, Tim Richardson came down to Scuba Steve and I and said, get the lures ready. We are going to go offshore and look for the tuna ag. I guess the boys have been catching them out there. The commercial fishermen have been seeing big black marlins out there. We're going to go out there and troll lures. So I, um, Scuba Steve and I, we go through and look at the lures and the hook rigs. The lures don't really matter as much as the hook rigs do, in my opinion, because we're trying to kill one. And uh, we didn't have anything that we didn't, Tim didn't have any rigs that, looked sufficient enough for killing a thousand pound black marlin. So we end up finding these, he somehow had a stash of these like offset, super thick gauge 9.0 LP long line hooks. They're like painted black or they have black wire, however they make them. Anyways, we found some big heavy cable and we made a bunch of hook rigs that night as we were drinking some rums. We are up to like 11 making hook rigs. And, um, we get them out there. We get out there to the tuna egg. We run out there. Got out there by like nine in the morning. And it was straight out of like a Nat Geo movie film. 
there was just acres of bait and bird piles as far as you could see. We couldn't keep the tunas off the line. There's 20-pound tunas up to, like, 100-pound tunas. This is trolling. You couldn't Eating, stop. like, our big lures. We didn't have any bullets out there. Out there, we were running things, like, the smallest thing we had out there was, like, a ruckus-sized lure, you know, like, proper marlin fishing lure. And we ended up catching a few. I think we caught, like, a 200-pounder, and we caught, like, a 400-pounder. And Lukey Fallon was out there that day, and I think he caught 12 that day, black marlins trolling. Wow. And, um... They're probably big ones, too. They're all, like, under six or seven, but, like, solid ones, like... Mid-rangers. And, um... So, I I freaking... Still don't let myself live it down. I missed the bite. Apparently, it was, like, the best bite ever. I was inside making ham, cheese, and tomato toasties fuck it fuck it those are toasties down there don't they're the singer mate yeah so you get the white bread you put plenty of mayo you got your slices of ham you have this big cheese this white sliced cheese and you put a slice of tomato in there put a bunch of butter on the toast on either side of the bread and you have those hot plate things that plug into the fuck they got a name for the outlet ham and cheese toasty yeah but they call it a I want to say it's like a Jaffa wire. I forget. Uh, yeah, some some sort of iron like, thing. Jaffle? Jaffle? Does that sound right? Jaffle iron. Jaffle iron, right? Yeah. yeah. The worst thing you can do, you can do is put the lead, the um, the outlet lead with the plug-in inside of the Jaffle Jaffle iron because it because the boat rocking around it messes up the Teflon in there. And, like, that's the worst thing you do as a crewman. You get flogged by the captain if you put the freaking power lead inside the Teflon. They can't have their fucking toasty. God, they love those things. So, yeah. So, anyways, I'm inside making ham and cheese toasties. And I just hear all this commotion. And I run out there, and we got two on. And I'm like, what the hell is going on? And Scuba Steve is yelling at me. Clear that one, blah, blah, blah. Scuba Steve is from North Carolina. Talk about it. And I'm like, whatever, so I get everything clear. He's like, we got a big one, man. You should have seen that fucking bike, bro. Like, blah, blah. I'm like, oh, shit, all right. Anyways, some, for some reason, we were running, a, I think we were running a 50 down the middle. I don't even know why. But we ended up breaking that one off. And it was like... Looking for trouble. It was like a three or 400 pounder. We broke it off, which was good. Because then this 1,200 pounder comes jumping out of the water. And... Um, yeah. You knew this one was a real one right off the bat. We yeah. saw it jump. You we knew, knew it was solid scuba and I knew it was real. And these guys wanted to kill one. And, uh, yeah, so we fought it for about 15 or 20 minutes and we got a gaff shot on it. Scuba Steve was on the leader. And uh, these freaking gaff ropes that Tim had were short. And like I was stuck on the, on the pedestal on the fighting chair. Like I couldn't reach out all the way. Anyways, thing jumped across the transom and I reached out and stroked it in. I got it like back just forward of its anal fin and ripped the gaff out and then it went down. And luckily, if we were on Linden Bank, we would have got shark. We fought yeah. it for another like 45 minutes straight up and down. It just went straight down. And we, um, it wasn't like some heroic battle like the blue marlin I caught, which is kind of surprising because most of the... It's kind of opposite. It's the opposite, really. And um, yeah, we just... Short stroked it up and whatever. After 40 minutes, the thing came up and it was still paddling away and going away, but just sluggish and stroked it in the shoulder. And that was it. Just needed one gaff in it and got it up in the boat. Luckily, um, we pulled it in the boat and everybody was stoked. We were all high-fiving, but we were like 50 miles from the bank and 
I mean, from Cairns and there oh, isn't many oh, places. At least from Cairns because the bank's probably 42 miles from Cairns or something, right? Is it that far? Yeah. I thought it was like 20. Uh, I think maybe your closest might be... Uh, I, I don't want to say this because I don't want some Cairns person to tell me. I think your closest place is kind of like Onyx okay. or, or Houston yeah, or, right. or Genuine Lees, and that's kind of like in the 20... Twenty mile range. I, so we are I, way the heck out. Yeah, I think I think it's further than that out, honestly. But I so we put the fish in the boat. We're like, uh, luckily Tim has a IGFA scale on his boat. He's one of the only guys that has one. A few other guys do, but um, luckily the Kiwi guys, Pacific Provider. What is his name? Um, you know the guy that catches all those world records that has the GNS, had the GNS. That um, Jason Long just bought. Uh, I don't, to be honest. Sorry. Anyways, I walked away week. for a second to look at my chart of the Great Barrier Reef I have in my house to see if that was going to help me at all with the miles, but I didn't really. Uh, I had a couple too many beers. I can't remember his name. You know who I'm talking about? The guys that cut all of those crazy records. Jacobson. He was, oh, the, uh, uh, he was the owner. Oh, the Hook and Bull? Yes. That one. Uh, uh, Gosh, John Batterman. Batterman. Batterton. Batterton, yeah. Yeah, so Batterton's, uh, they were out fishing, but they had their big mothership, the Pacific Provider, and they were somewhere up there on Ribbon Reef number two or something. Anyways, we motored down there, and they agreed to let us hang the fish up, and fish weighed 1,220 pounds. That is a huge fish. And, yeah, we proceeded to just come into cans and... Have a big night on the town after that. And that was, uh, <laughs> yeah, I imagine. That was the biggest one I ever weighed. But honestly, I had a great time and those guys were stoked. And they ended up getting getting the fish mounted by um, some mount guy I had never heard of from Florida. But he did a great job as custom mount. But the best trip I had that season wasn't even catching that fish. We went back out there with the, the captain that... I had signed up to fish with that season with Ian Ford, Wobbles, and we just had a three-day, four-day, three-night charter, and our charter the night before ended up getting in a fight with our captain, because he was... (laughs) What? Yeah, because he... So they were like tradey guys, right? Like tradesmen, whatever, so they like save up all year to... This is like their big splurge for their... um, four-day trip right tradesmen like in, in australian tradies yeah. yeah okay yeah so um anyways they don't know how to stop drinking so wobs tells me okay we got these guys that have fished with them before they're a little bit loose but they're all right blah blah, blah. so i'm like okay he's like they want us no to go bad out. charters right yeah <laughs> so i'm like all right whatever he's like they want us to go out to dinner with them before the charter starts i'm like yeah of course whatever so um, we go out to dinner and then we start drinking and it's like nine or ten o'clock and I'm tired. I got a, I got a four day trip ahead of me. And I got to go rig some stuff and whatever. So Wob stays out with them drinking. I go back to the boat, getting everything sorted because they're going to be down there at eight in the morning and got to grab all their stuff, whatever you know how it is. And um, I hear Wobbles come back onto the boat at like I don't know what hour it was. Could have been one in the morning. Could have been three in the morning. And he's talking on his cell phone. I didn't realize. I thought it was somebody else. And he's just like, you come fucking, you want, you want a piece of me? Just come get your fucking cunt ass over here. I'm right here. You know where to fucking find me, blah, blah, blah. I'm like, Jesus, Wilds, what the hell is going on? He's like, oh, fuck them. We're not going fishing, blah, blah, blah. I'm like, what the hell is going on? Apparently, our charter 
got a little bit overserved at the bar after dinner and was like getting handsy with one of the bartenders at the bar they were at and like grabbed some chick's ass or something and got kicked out of the bar and Wobbles told him to chill out and to like go home and go to sleep because we got a charter fish and the guy didn't like that Wobbles told him to go home and go to sleep and like they end up getting in a fight over it. Like a proper fist fight. No, they didn't. I don't think they come to fisty cuffs as they call it over yeah, there. They didn't come to blows, mate. Mm-mm. Yeah. But basically, later on, come to find out that like they were looking around trying to like get another charter that next morning and blah blah blah. Long story short, we were supposed to leave at eight in the morning. They come back down around one or two in the afternoon, and the guy apologizes. And I was pissed. I didn't like the guy from the start. Um, I didn't give him, I didn't really forgive him. I was just like, whatever. If my captain wants to take him out fishing on part of the boat, I'm going to take him out fishing. Yeah, and you're there. You're in the Great Barrier Reef, one of the best fishing places yeah, in the it wasn't world. Like, and you want to go fishing. Like, I, you, it wasn't like I was going to, I'm just there to put the worms on the hooks. I'm not. <laughs> I love that expression, dude. <laughs> I don't really have a foot in the, I don't have a, a say in the argument, you know? That's such a great expression down there. It's like, they're like, yeah, this, I'm just here to put the worms on the hook. I mean, mm-hmm. talk about talk about degrading like such a hard job like down there. Like, I mean, like sometimes people take it for granted because like Kona Hawaii troll lures and stuff. A proper day on the Great Barrier Reef is a legitimate day of work. You got to get up in the morning. You got to feed the people. You got to you got to make bait. It's like endlessly cleaning. Turn over the cabin. Make you know. Got to catch. Um, from the catch, moment catch, you like me. open your eyes in the morning and then crawl out of the bunk to the moment that you crawl back into your bunk, like there's zero downtime. Yeah, there's like no free time. Zero. Whatsoever. No, definitely not. And then on some boats, it's like, like I can remember as I, like, you know, I went back, I took a break and I went back and, and did a couple of years, like, uh, you know, not this year because of COVID, but the three years in a row before yeah. that, I went back and did, you know, and, uh, Fuck man, like I, uh, I, I mean, I was a lot older, and like I just like, you know, trying to stay up with the charters. When I was younger, you'd stay up like the, like it's kind of expected yeah. protocol to stay up totally. with the charters. You know, like some of the charters, like oh, you stay up with the charters. I was falling asleep at the dinner table some days. Yeah. I'll just admit I was. I was like, of you know, like I, 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 but I also was getting up before everyone else because I'm a yeah. real early riser these days. Like so, like. I would get up before everyone, but I was literally falling asleep at the at the dinner table. Especially Cra- towards the end of the season. Oh, Crafty's got some really pictures where they like got a vacuum cleaner stuck to my head, like you know, like the the, the small dust buster thing. They got a vacuum cleaner going stuck to my head at the dinner table, and I don't even know it. And I haven't had a drink in me. I'm just so exhausted. That's but the, yeah, there's some photos out there with like them doing terrible things to me as I'm passed out at the dinner table. It's pretty bad. Yeah, I was pretty tired. So. We're out there on this charter that Wobbs had, like, almost gotten a fight with the night before. We're supposed to be out there for three nights. And it's four or five guys. The one guy that almost got in a fight with him was just crazy, crazy dude. His best friend was a drug dealer from Sydney. He, like, told me that he, like, sold cocaine and whatever else. And he, like, is a chef or a cook at, like, the prison or, like, some freaking halfway house deal or something. So, Wobbs didn't like him. Sounds like a great guy. Wobbs didn't like this guy either because Wobbles loves to cook. And so, this guy's trying to tell Wobbles how to cook at the end of the night. (laughs) (laughs) 
<laughs> oh yeah, that's perfect. Just the combination you need on boards. Yeah. The other two guys were a father and son. We get out there and the weather is just atrocious. In the first two days, we don't catch shit. I think the last of the second day, we caught like a small one, like a 200 pounder. Did you go no, charging no. back out to the to the to yeah, we, aggregation? We, no, no. Um, we the bite was happening like on. Ribbon Reef 3 and 4, and we came out of cans. Good. And so um, we went back up there. And I'm sorry, for the first three days. So three days of fishing, and the weather was shitty. And finally on the third day, we got one, like a three or 400 pounder. First two days, we didn't have anything. And then so the weather was coming down, and obviously we had to get south. So we started, this is the fourth day now. And we have good bait. And we caught, the fourth day, we caught, like, some really nice scalies, which is, like, my favorite bait. And um, we're trolling back south, and we get past Ribbon, or I'm sorry, we get past the bank, right outside the bank. And we caught one, like, a nice one, like a six or 700 pounder. And, no, 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 no. Back that story up. We caught a real nice one, like a 900, 950, whatever you want to call it. For, for the guy that was almost fighting with Wobbles the night before the charter, was almost fighting with my captain, and I didn't like the guy. I was just getting up him while he's in the chair telling him he is useless and whatever, and they needed to crank on the head. Oh, it sounds like you fit right in down yeah. there. <laughs> and so after that, so that was our second fish of the four days, right? And so after that, everybody was stoked. Pretty much the trip is over. It's like 2 o'clock in the afternoon. We caught our two fish. For the four guys, this is our fourth day of fishing. I'm making them lunch. I remember um, they didn't know what like burritos were, and I actually brought down um, burrito like um, ground beef seasoning for like um, you know like the burrito taco seasoning. I would they had bring, never experienced burritos before. Yeah, and I would bring the taco mm. seasoning down with me. Not super well traveled, I'd say. No, for sure. They're, <laughs> they're tradies from like the outskirts of Sydney, and. Um, yeah, I would always bring, like, my little package of stuff. I would bring sesame seed oil and the hot sauce, the um, Asian hot sauce that I like for making poke. Just, like, random stuff. And I would bring my burrito seasoning, my taco seasoning down there with me. Anyway, so I'm in there making uh, burritos for everybody. And um, we still got two lures out, two baits out there. And I'm working one up. It was only me on the deck. Wobbles made a deal with me because he had leased the boat. And so... He offered if we bring another crewman that he would pay me a certain wage. And if I worked by myself the whole season, he would pay me like an additional $100. So it was more work, but more pay. Right. And so um, I'm, I got big dropbacks off the riggers. Like some, if there's a good bite, they'll hook themselves, whatever. I'm in there. <laughs> <laughs> it was like the loosest program ever. <laughs> that's all right. It was so loose. It was ridiculous. Sometimes that stuff just works out. But we caught the shit out of them. <laughs> So I'm in there making lunch, I'm making burritos, and then I serve everybody their burritos, and we're all, like, by that, everybody was getting along, the vibe on the boat was awesome, nobody wanted to fight each other, we caught it, we caught this big fish and got this amazing footage, and so we had made the trip, everything, we'd won, and I'm up in the tower, uh, sitting on the deck of the tower, with my arm through the tower rung, eating a burrito, Talking to Wobs, drinking a beer with Wobs, and simultaneously I have a, a scaly on the short bait 
and a what do you call the freaking um, queenfish? I'm queenie. Gonna, I guess queenie. it's a queenie, but uh, he is wiggling his hand very nicely, <laughs> like uh, making in a very rhythmic, this smooth like fashion. <laughs> I, 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 because you have to paint the picture with words here. I knew with, by his wiggly hand, he was talking about a queenfish <laughs> elegantly swimming through the water. So I've been saving this queenie for like the whole freaking trip. Well, honestly. I had this perfect queenie bait, and I didn't want to put it out because I didn't like this charter. <laughs> so I kind of been saving that in the freezer, but we were running low on bait, and I was like, fuck it, I'll put the queenie out. And so we got our long one. I got a perfect size queen fish, like however big, like whatever proper, the perfect size, like two feet long. Yeah. And then like a proper like 10 pound, 12 pound scaly on the short one. And I'm up there in the tower. Yes. Nobody so for, on the the get, for the people at home, that's a 10 to 12 pound bait he's pulling. Just, yeah. That's just like our ideal size. You can catch them on like 20 pounders. But like that's like the jelly bean size that you want. The biggest one I probably ever caught one on down there was on a, a yellowfin tuna. Like it was probably 35, 40 pounds. Yeah. It, and it was the fucking, you know, one of the best bites I've ever it's seen. It's just in my hard life. to run them in rough weather and mm. it's not like ideal. You got to. You know, tighten your your clips down and shit. But yeah, it's more work, and the conditions have to be right. But it is, and the hookup ratio is kind of hard. Like, exactly. so it's a great bait for a big fish, but you kind of, you know, the thing is, a fucking two hundred pounder will still hit a thirty pound bait and just fuck up the bait and miss the fish. So, anyways, please go on. So we won the we won the charter. Like everything's fine. We caught this like beautiful nine hundred pound fish, and we got like. In, I used to have this um, really nice. You know, um, still camera that I got these amazing photos of and all this stuff. And um, anyways, I'm up in the tower drinking a beer with my captain. We're heading in. We're only we're gonna put the baits out for another thirty minutes. We're gonna pull the baits and run in. So I'm up there in the tower, and I never get to see bites out of the tower because I'm always on the deck. Sure enough, simultaneous like synchronized swimming. A 400-pounder and one way bigger. Like, I just caught a, t- a weight of 1,200-pounder a week prior. This one that was way over 900 pounds comes into the middle of the spread and simultaneously eats the bait. Each one eats one bait simultaneously, and we hook them both. We got, like, a 400-pounder on and one that's, like, way over 950. If I had to guess, if I had to, if I had to put money on it, it would have been over 1150. And, um, so another fucking animal. Yeah. It was way bigger than the one that we were celebrating. And, um, (laughs) and yeah, we caught the 400 pounder real quick. We just cut it off. Got it like within a couple minutes and just cut the leader off. Yeah. Yep. And then, um, fought that bigger one for another like 20 minutes, got it on leader and did a bunch of jumps and freaking cut that one off. And that was like the best day that I ever had on the reef. And that was the second to the last trip that I had done. It's awesome. Yeah, and that was the same year that I caught that 1200 pounder with Tim Richardson. But that day was, it was just the emotion of like having this weird charter and then having that day with the captain that I love with Ian Ford and just all the like crazy roller coaster of emotions and- The whole vicious cycle of charter fishing. Yeah, the vicious <laughs> cycle of charter fishing. And then we proceeded to go Back to Graham's Pub that night. Yeah. And, the, uh, co- the cock and bowl, if you go to Cons- uh, Kansas, Australia, with the uh, 
world famous uh, Cans Game Fishing Club that, that Graham has there. And I still didn't like the uh, <laughs> the charter. The, well, I liked all the other guys, but the the fourth guy that almost got in a fight with my captain the, before the charter started. Him and I got into it, and I told him he was fuck all. And I, <laughs> good use of Australian terminology. <laughs> I bowed up. Fuck to, all, I, meaning nothing. <laughs> <laughs> fuck all and plenty of it. I told him he's a dead cunt. And um, <laughs> bowed up to him, and he backed down, and that was that. But that was like the best, like charter story that I have for fishing down there. Just a crazy whirlwind of emotions. Yeah, that is a hell of a spot. Well, let me ask you a few lightning round questions. There's been some great marlin stories here, and um, I'm just gonna ask you a couple true falses type blonde brunette type stuff, and uh, we'll wrap it up. Blonde or brunette? Brunette for sure. Oh, is that right? Guaranteed. All right. Are all redheads crazy or just 90% of them? All the ones I ever dated. <laughs> In life, uh, is life closer to the first photo or the fourth photo of someone's Tinder profile? What's closer to reality? I don't know much about Tinder profiles, honestly. If I had to guess, it would be four. I, I would say it's four as well, too. And I also think you're lying on this one. But that's fine. I understand your professional... Reputation you're trying to keep here. Uh, favorite bar in the world? I gotta go with the Wolf Shed. Oh, me too. Oh, yeah, without a doubt, man. How could you not? That that is got to be the. I don't know what the politically correct way to say this is, but if you can't get laid in the fucking Wolf Shed, you can't get laid anywhere in the world. That no. place is ridiculous. For the people at home, you might not know this, but Cairns, Australia, is like the sneakiest nightlife place on earth because you have this huge population of people that are coming to australia and to experience the great barrier reef and so people are either celebrating that they just got to australia and they're partying or a lot of them have been working like backpacking around the country and they go to the great barrier reef before they go home so like it's a sleepy little town, but that has the most amazing nightlife you have ever seen. Like, it's like a real sleeper in that department. So, for me, I also am going to back you on that one. We already kind of heard about what was your worst day, probably charter fishing. That was probably it, huh? And best? Yeah. Yeah? It definitely sticks out to me, for sure. All right, let's end on a positive note here. Most beautiful thing you've ever seen out at sea? I was fishing with wobbles. And we were uh, anchored up. It was on seven. That's the anchorage, right? Could be, yeah. That's where everybody likes. That's like the best anchorage on the reef. Mm. Right? Am I wrong? Nah. Was it? Uh, seven can kind of be a kind of a spot. No, what, is, like what is five? It? Probably five is yeah. one of the bigger ones in the middle. Yeah, yeah, that was it. Five. That's like the main five. best anchorage, right? Well, I mean, unless you go down further south. No, 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 but up that up that side. Probably five. Yeah, I think it was number five, and so it had like. 12 boats up there or more, and all of these, there was a solar eclipse happening that day, and all of these people came from all around the world, flying to Cairns, all these scientists, astronomers, to photograph and witness the solar eclipse. And the poor guys in Cairns, they all got rained out and nobody saw it. And the only people that were able to see the eclipse were all the fishermen that were out at the anchorage. Oh, it's awesome. And I got this cracker of a photo of the solar eclipse. And it was, I'd seen a couple like partial eclipses, but I'd never seen anything like that. It was unreal. It happened at like eight in the morning. So the sun rose probably at like seven and it was 
fairly high in the sky. And um, normal morning, everything was light, birds running, birds flying around and everything happening. And then about 15 minutes before the sun, before the moon eclipsed the sun, everything got like real still. Like it seemed like the wind died down, the birds weren't anywhere to be seen. And the moon passed across the sun and it just like nobody said anything, nobody on the boat said any a word and like everything just stood still and it got this real dark like dusk feel. And this moon passed across the sun and I got some really good photos and then went back across the sun and everything kind of went back to normal but it was definitely the most beautiful and most kind of um, surreal moment that I've ever had. Funny enough, it was in Australia since we were on the topic. Yeah, it's awesome. Well, that is a great memory. Uh, just closing here. How do people... So, someone's looking for a house around Kona or around the Big Island of Hawaii. They want to come out here. They love it. How do people get a hold of you? Instagram, Real Estate Ryan in Kona. Email, Ryan O at LubaRealEstate.com. Phone number, 808-345-6255. Be happy to help, no matter how small or how big. Yep. Ryan's nickname is the Million Dollar Man. But just because he deals with million dollar homes doesn't mean he can't get you into something affordable on the big island that meets your needs. Is that true? 100%. 100%. All right, guys. Well, thank you very much. Thank you for listening. Ryan, thank you very, very much for being here. Greatly appreciate it, my friend. Thank you, having me. Well, thank you for having me, Ken. Hey, I really appreciate you coming down. Maybe we can do this again sometime. Love Next app, go kill another grander and we'll have another interview. Sounds so. good. All right, brother. Take care. Aloha. Aloha.